0: The
1: Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts.
2: Five. When people are this desperate to silence you or to discredit you, you must be saying something that's true. Four.
0: Well, I think The Telegraph readers generally agree that Mr Gove can shove his Covid passport up his precautionary principle. Three.
3: Economical with the actuality, as Alan Clark told us.
0: <laughs> you know, we're Alice in Wonderland, fallen down the rabbit hole. What is going on? Nothing makes sense. One.
3: We have liftoff. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. The government spent months pronouncing on the dangers of Covid. Now ministers are trying to reassure us, getting us ready for the lifting of lockdown by introducing Covid passports, which many Brits instinctively oppose. More than 70 MPs, including over 40 Tories, have signed an open letter to Boris Johnson, rejecting the use of so-called vaccine certificates. Keir Starmer's Labour Party may also say no, meaning the government could face defeat. This is a busy voyage to Planet Normal co-pilot, including the first interview with the chairman of the government's Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities. A Londoner, born of Jamaican parents, Tony Sewell's been dubbed a Nazi by radical critics after his report actually praised aspects of race relations in the UK. But before that, Alison, COVID passports. You've had your jab. You're ready for the lifting of restrictions. But something tells me you're not a fan.
0: Have we been sold a pup, Halligan? (laughs) There we were. (laughs) There he is. (laughs) There he is. We went along, didn't we, to have our jabs because the Prime Minister told us that the vaccine was the cavalry coming over the hill to roll back, you know, all the restrictions. And uh, he could hear the toot, toot, toot of the bugle of the cavalry, which meant freedom was coming. And, And I think that's the basis on which many of us signed up for the vaccine. I didn't I think we've mentioned before on Planet Normal, I didn't feel in, in, un, under any personal threat from it. But I was anxious to help my society, particularly for the young and the old and the, and the lonely, to get back to normal.
3: We've both backed that, haven't we? We've both really had very positive experiences and, and praised on our podcast and to our friends and professional colleagues the vaccine jabs that we had. And we've both got a second jab to come.
0: We have, and we've got a bit of criticism for it, because I know quite a few listeners have been a bit more cynical about the vaccine, and I can understand that. But, you know, as I said, my priority has been restarting society because the collateral damage we talk about every single week on Planet Normal is so great that, you know, I'd rather sign up to something like the vaccines. Now, here's a puzzle for you, Halligan. Go on. On the 3rd of April, which is Saturday, Matt Hancock, who I believe is the Secretary of State for Health, tweeted... The vaccine is our route to normal. And on the 5th of April, 48 hours later, Matt Hancock tweeted, reclaiming our lost freedoms and getting back to normal hinges on us all getting tested regularly. So we seem to have gone from the vaccine is the route to <laughs> back to normal, to but you'll also have to have two tests of your own volition every week. And, and, and Liam, I'm feeling my brain is totally scrambled this week. It's a, you know, we're Alice in Wonderland, fallen down the rabbit hole. What is going on. Nothing makes sense. You, Halligan, can't come to my house at the moment for a cup of coffee because our mutual vaccines apparently don't prevent transmission of the virus. And yet, according to the latest version of the Alice in Wonderland events, in a few months' time, that's extraordinary in itself, but in a few months' time, if they roll out these Vaccine passports, or what Boris likes to call the COVID status certificate, then we'll be okay to go into a restaurant with our vaccine passports. When presumably transmission will be prevented, can you cast any light on this on this uh, white rabbit logic that we're being subjected to?
3: At a time when so many people in this country, young and old, young and old, really are at the end of their tether, locked down fatigue, Mm. all the denying of of human contact, impact on education and so on. We've been through all this, our wonderful vaccination programme, which it really is the leading programme among the large economies of the world, a really incredible achievement we can all be rightly proud of. And it doesn't seem to be reaping the benefits for us in terms of ending restrictions uh, and in terms of what the government's saying about the danger to us there was a fabulous piece Alison, went up on the telegraph website on tuesday and we'll put the link in the show notes mm. to this episode by our science editor sarah napton who i yes. think has had a yeah. fabulous year or so writing extreme authority and diligence about covid and she points out that when the prime minister and others say that we could face a third wave this summer almost putting the kibosh on other parts of the government and the Prime Minister in other moments, often in the same press conference, when he's trying to encourage us to get out there with his vaccine passports, certificates, as we must call them. Yes, yes. Um, Sarah Napton points out that the modelling that the government is using is, in her words, and she is one of the most understated you know, health writers on Fleet Street, extremely diligent person. Sarah says, unduly pessimistic modelling much of the data she says our science editor is needlessly negative this is the
0: imperial college isn't it liam yeah. this is the latest the latest from their mad model basically that's
3: right much of the data is needlessly negative and often out of date mm. and she shows very carefully in her newspaper article how the new modelling is underestimating the immunity that people have the antibodies that people have The new modelling ignores totally the protection from transmission to others provided by the vaccine, which we know is there, and it also ignores, when predicting this third wave in the summer, it ignores seasonality factors, which we know, again, Mm. are important. So Boris Johnson really does have to get his rhetorical ducks in a row, if you like. He (laughs) needs to lead. He can't, on the one hand say to us look we're lifting restrictions we've got this fabulous vaccine program as a corollary of that to support that effort we need to cross a rubicon in the eyes of many of us and issue vaccine certificates vaccine passports which could be discriminatory against certain people and then on the other hand put out this modeling that says there's going to be a huge third wave peak this summer which means many of the population who are scared will stay indoors
0: yeah, but- my question is, what the hell is going on? Can we, can we speculate, Liam? So, is Boris, you know, flanked by his guards or his masters, witty and valence? Are they saying to him, if you don't push through this vaccine passport COVID ID, which he doesn't want us to call it? We will force you to keep social distancing. I don't know what you thought. I thought on Monday at the press briefing, Boris looked unbelievably uncomfortable. Yeah, this is the politician who, back in 2004, said about identity cards they were a, a recipe for tyranny and oppression. If I'm obliged to have one by the emanations of the state, I will grind it up and eat it on my cornflakes. So no wonder he looks shifty, because this is introducing something to which he has always been violently opposed. And another very excellent uh, Telegraph columnist, Philip Johnson, wrote a a really good column as well this week. And, (laughs) And Philip said, this is not because vaccine passports are a good thing because the government is in a pickle of its own making by exaggerating the threat of COVID to the point where millions are too fearful to return to normal life without some reassurance. The certificates are presumably intended to provide it. Now, my quarrel with the vaccine passport is not just that it's scientifically, just not necessary. I mean, we know that last summer when we didn't even have the vaccine, that the numbers were flatlining, weren't they? I mean, where are all these dead people that Imperial College is predicting are are going going to come from? I mean, it just beggars belief. But on the other hand, I think, let's be charitable. What are they trying to do? They're trying to persuade the younger cohort to have the vaccine. But any public health expert will tell you, Liam, that coercion makes people very angry and resistant to having the vaccine. And this also makes people like me, who've had the first dose of the vaccine, think, why the hell should I have the second dose of the vaccine? Because I've been lured by a false prospectus. So yes, you mentioned, didn't you, that the Labour Party may finally be waking from its trusting coma and acting like an opposition and challenging these passports, certainly for John Ashworth said that they wouldn't want people to show a passport to go into a shop.
3: Following Ed Davies' Lib Dems, we should give them a mention.
0: Absolutely, yeah, I know, I know. They've
3: rediscovered the liberal in their title. The liberal
0: in Democrat. Um, but what we've also seen this week is, is two slightly more positive things uh, for me. Is Joe Biden's White House spokesperson said that there was no way that they would be supporting a system that required Americans to carry um any sort of vaccine credentials. So that's because it was, you know, it was it was against the traditions of liberty of that nation. So that might give our leaders pause for thought. I'm also seeing as well something that just really upset me. I mean, we had Hugh Osmond. You interviewed him a couple of weeks ago, brilliant guest, you know, pivotal figure in hospitality there.
3: He's the founder of Punch Taverns, Britain's leading publican, if you like.
0: Yes, and Sasha Lord, the nighttime economy advisor for Greater Manchester, bringing this high court challenge, and they're rightly asking, why can non-essential retail open next week when COVID secure pubs and restaurants can't? But Lim, what I'm seeing is a really dreadful moral blackmail. So essentially, what they seem to be saying to, you know, pubs or, or shops is if you accept these vaccine passports, we will let you remove the social distancing measures which hamper your business. But If you're very naughty and don't comply and um, insist your guests or customers have the vaccine passports, we will make insist that you continue to impose the social distancing measures which will make it impossible for your businesses to break even. Does this sound to you like the action of a Conservative government? I really am thinking, have I Voted for these people was it was it all a bad dream?
3: They really have got themselves into a mess. Just to mention that Hugh Osmond, Sasha Lord thing again, and to give listeners the dates precisely. So on April the twelfth, as you say, this coming week, if you like, outdoor hospitality and non-essential shops will open. So pubs and restaurants al fresco, and it's only on May the seventeenth that pubs and restaurants will be able to operate. Indoors, And the vast majority of pubs and restaurants are only indoors. And this is a sector that employs, you know, 10% of our workforce, particularly young people, of course, many family businesses. And what Osborne and Lord have cleverly done is that they've gone to the high court and sought a judicial review. And the government's trying to ignore them. Osmond and Lord want evidence, scientific evidence, discriminating against indoor pubs and hospitality, which are often much better ventilated than non-essential shops Indeed, that they can are. open yeah. five weeks earlier. That's the crucial thing, as, as Hugh explained so brilliantly on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. And then along comes a High Court judge, Mr Justice Swift, what a brilliant name, <laughs> and said to the Department of Health and Matt Hancock, look, you've got to respond to these guys. I want this expedited. I want this happening quickly because, of course... April the 12th is fast approaching. So we'll see what happens there. Look, you and I, we're not absolutely adamant on this issue of vaccine passports. We've both said, haven't we, that there are certain situations where you should have a vaccine certificate. Surgeons already have to have a hepatitis jab. If you work in a care home or maybe even a hospital, I'm probably less upset than you, Alison, at the concept of a vaccine passport, maybe a a phone app or something that you can show certain businesses, maybe nightclubs could want it where there's particular proximity, maybe access to a festival or something. I think it could have worked if it had been rolled out within a better atmosphere when the government didn't have such mixed messaging. I completely agree with you that you shouldn't need a passport for very simple, straightforward things like going to shops and ordinary restaurants. I'm totally with you on that. And now, as you say, it's become a battle of wills and the government could lose this vote and Starmer smells blood. And I think what's happening is the opposition, they're always going to do whatever they can to put the government in as big a mess as possible so they wanted johnson to go into lockdown earlier and now they want him to come out of lockdown earlier and without vaccine passports completely logically incongruous positions but hey ho that's political opposition <laughs> that's what you what you need to do but you know johnson as we've said he's way ahead in the opinion polls he's 10 points ahead of keir starmer my surmise, Alison is that that poll lead is very, very fragile. It's extremely impressive. And we've got elections coming up, haven't we, on May the 6th?
0: Yeah, and we've got Hartley Pool by-election as well. We've
3: got big local elections. But I think that lead is very, very fragile. And if he loses what sure-footedness he has left on COVID, which revolves entirely around the vaccine rollout, which has been world-class, by squandering the goodwill from that vaccine rollout, by bungling vaccine certificates, by pushing too hard, by losing a parliamentary vote on a key piece of business that the whole country will notice, then I think he could be in political trouble.
0: Well, he said all along, hasn't he, sort of data not dates, but we know that's not true. I'm struggling to find synonyms for lies, Liam. Honestly, I really am. And I don't know if you saw, there was an absolutely brilliant example
3: Economical with the actuality. As Alan Clark told Alan us, Alan Clark
0: said, "I was I was struggling to remember that economic with the actuality exactly with an
3: acute accent
0: <laughs> with actuality, exactly." There was an article in the Sunday Telegraph, which actually was was a brilliant summing up of everything we're talking about. Where Michael Gove he claimed to be seeking Telegraph readers' views on the role that certification might play in an anti-Covid strategy, and he said, "I know Telegraph readers will help us find common sense answers." Well, it was. Whoa! Light blue touch paper and Stanwell back. I mean, it was like that moment at uh, one of our sort of seventies childhood fireworks parties, where the biscuit tin full of the bangers uh, had a spark in it. I mean, keep
3: pets indoors.
0: Keep pets indoors, and yes, and Mr. Gove should have should have been kept. Do well not read awake. the
3: instructions by a naked flame. <laughs>
0: exactly so it was basically 8 thousand apoplectic comments later and the consensus was that Mr. Gove could
3: Mr. Gove <laughs> do not put telegraph readers in your pockets <laughs>
0: Well, I think the Telegraph readers generally agreed that Mr. Gove can shove his COVID passport up his precautionary principle. I mean, it, actually, I just got a couple of the things that they said. I mean, extraordinary, brilliant comments, if I may say so, from our terrific readers and listeners. Jane said the idea that you can only access normal daily life dependent upon having a mandated government medical intervention is abhorrent. And Jane pointed out she had three children with genetic conditions which could be made worse yeah. if they had the vaccine. Said, so as you said, it's not just people who are unwell who can't have the vaccine.
3: Pregnant women. Pregnant women. My God, what an important group. The future of our race. Apparently,
0: no, no one's having sex or any babies. So we soon su- 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 won't actually have any country left anyway, you know. And there's a fantastic, angry rebuff from a guy called Mr. R. Green. So Michael Gove had claimed that. Uh, although the vaccinations were good, they would never provide 100% protection. And this guy said nothing will provide 100% protection and to expect for it to happen is blatantly ridiculous. The most vulnerable parts of the population, plus millions more, have been inoculated and are safe, whilst the others are largely safe in any case. It is time to stop the stupidity and get on with life again. Or do we have to hide forever, cowering like a herd of sheep? So these are these are not opponents of the government. These are
3: core conservative voters who are deeply disillusioned with what's deeply,
0: happening. Deeply, deeply disillusioned. And I think I said I said in my column this week that I just noticed this tiny little revealing tick, which is they've stopped calling the prime minister Boris and they've started referring to him as Johnson. Now I think that's a little bit of ice entering the soul. What do you think?
3: Yes, I, when I read that in your column, that did bring me up short. When you know someone's made an observation that you know is bang on, but you just hadn't realised it yourself. And I think that is a, an important transformation. And that's why I think this lead in the polls, which Boris has, very, very impressive, partly mm. a function of the fact that Keir Starmer has really struggled, yes. partly because of his own kind of flip-floppery, but in fairness to him, partly because you know of lockdown, it's been very difficult for him to speak to the nation. He can't do any stump speeches. He can't do any campaigning. He's yeah. leading her majesty's opposition via zoom um and i do feel sorry for him uh, for that reason i do think he's a much more effective and dangerous politician for johnson than we're currently seeing and most pundits are assuming but boris does have to be really really careful here and and i'm i'm also interested in what george has to say this week yeah. because you know the hospitalization numbers are astonishingly low Particularly when you compare what's happening here in the UK with our EU counterparts, where you've got you know, the French and the Germans deep back in lockdown now, where you've got big economies where hospitalisation rates are rising, even though we're leaving winter and spring and moving towards summer.
0: Yes, and and let's remind ourselves, Liam, that, you know, save the NHS, let's not let the NHS be overwhelmed. That was the kind of core mission of all this, wasn't it? And now that's been swept aside. And George, who is our fantastic source within NHS England, has been keeping Planet Normal listeners bang up to date with what's happening in, in hospitals and throughout NHS England. George has got a little bit of a scoop this week, by the way. Just
3: before you start, Alison... We don't disclose George's identity. Uh, We're very confident of the authenticity of his or her statistics. That's why you report them. George is a senior source within NHS England. But by definition, we can't independently verify the numbers that we report from George because by definition, they're yet to be published.
0: That's right. So George says this week, you will have noticed there was no hospital occupancy update over the bank holiday weekend. Weekend updates from NHS England have stopped from now onwards for the first time in a year. That's how much of a non-crisis it is now. As of this morning, George said, that was Tuesday, there were slightly over 2,500 COVID patients in hospital, which means just 2%, Liam, of the available hospital beds. ITU beds occupied by COVID patients are now below 500. And that is fantastic news because you remember that there was a very strong sort of sticking point with ITU. So below 500 now. There were only 16 new admissions with COVID across the whole of England, which is less than one admission for every two hospitals. And just under 100 patients were diagnosed with COVID after admission. And this is our sort of bet noir, Liam, isn't it? I, I I, know I keep banging on about this, but this is our friend, nosocomial infections.
3: Within hospitals.
0: Within hospitals. so You
3: just like say the word. <laughs>
0: I do. It's my one size, my science word I've learned. But the Telegraph investigations team had an exclusive which found that more than a fifth of COVID deaths at some hospitals came after patients caught the virus on the wards. Now, Velma, (laughs) Velma's predicting that extremely poor infection control in the NHS is going to be the dirty secret that will feature prominently in a in a public inquiry. Now now about that inquiry, what a little bit of insight here. George says, I see that Chris Whitty appears to be manoeuvring himself to a more pragmatic standpoint all of a sudden, telling a parliamentary committee that we will soon be treating COVID just as we treat flu. And by the way, Liam, if that's the case, what's the point of two tests for every adult in the country for a week when we certainly don't do that for flu? But George says, George continues, they are all repositioning themselves now before the public inquiry gets underway. NHS England have already started the process of appointing the first couple of people to set up the inquiry hub they will be responsible for furnishing the public inquiry with any evidence or requested documentation. At this stage, they are setting up the processes which will be able to source that evidence from across the organisation. So that's just a sign, I think, that they're sort of starting to get that ready in the background. And I think we'll have, we should view the performance of the scientists and the politicians now through that knowledge.
1: It begins as a love story. Couples who meet as young activists bonded in a fight against injustice. We seem to have similar outlooks in life. He often made me feel very special. It felt
0: like we were in love. I remember it being quite magical. As far as I was concerned, we had a future together. I fully did envisage my future with him.
1: But then... He starts acting strangely. Suddenly there were secrets and there were inconsistencies and there were things that didn't make sense. Then one day he leaves. I came home from work and I realised immediately that he'd gone. Vanishes without a trace. And the reason why these men disappear is so disturbing it's led to a formal apology from the state. I never for a moment thought that it would be what it actually turned out to be. This is Bed of Lies, the true story of one of the biggest scandals in recent British history and the latest podcast from The Telegraph. Talk about the Stasi in East Germany. That's not how we understand our society. A tale that travels from the safety of a loving bedroom to the very heart of the law. Search for Bed of Lies wherever you're listening to this.
3: In the aftermath of the Black Lives Matter protest last summer, Downing Street launched the Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities. Chaired by educationalist Dr Tony Sewell, the Commission reported last Wednesday. It concluded that when it comes to life chances of the UK's 13% ethnic minority population, factors such as geography, family, influence, socio-economic background, culture and religion are more important than race. While racism unquestionably exists in the UK, the progress made by ethnic minorities in Britain over the past 50 years should, the report concluded, be regarded as a model for other white majority countries. Sewell was born in London to Jamaican parents. His nine fellow commissioners are almost all from ethnic minority backgrounds too. Yet since their report was published, they've been pilloried by many on the left compared to members of the Ku Klux Klan by a Labour MP, with Sewell himself likened to Hitler's Nazi propagandist, Joseph Goebbels, by a Cambridge University academic. Tony Sewell spent his career either as a teacher, an education researcher, or a community and charity leader, working predominantly with youngsters from ethnic minority backgrounds. I started by asking him how such harsh criticism made him feel.
2: I mean as far as I'm concerned I'm I'm not really going to entertain that thing about me feeling anything really because I I'm, I'm, I'm kind of used to it I'm fairly thick skinned and I think what this has done is it's just been disruptive enough so people can think about the issues and and, and for me I think your listeners and, and and yourself want to really understand and this is where we, we kind of people do avoidance things really as to how can my life be better how can I really get on and progress? What, you know, I mean, you know, am I being taken seriously, you know, um, whatever background I'm from? Are there barriers, particularly to do with race that stopping me progressing? And if they are, what are they? And if they're not those, and, and this is the kind of conundrum we came up in the commission. What are those barriers, it's particularly on, on the race front? And absolutely, without any doubt, and I wanna say this loud and clear, we are not deniers of racism. Racism exists. And it's in the lived experiences of people, and you can't be, you know, you, you can't be shallow on that. However, when it comes to looking at the particular disparities that um, people face in in and in, in areas of education, um, health, crime and policing, and employment, uh, we found a, 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 a myriad of of causes um, when it looked when we came to looking at that disparity. So that, that that's really all we. We came up with it, and we just wanted to make the thing a little bit more complex, and, and, and that's all. It was no big agenda here.
3: So where is the anger coming from, from the left and even from the mainstream Labour Party? Your report does reaffirm, quotes, outright racism still exists in the UK. It accepts controversial concepts like unconscious bias and institutional racism. It concludes Britain is not yet a post-racial society and yet the report also makes clear that there are other issues involved and that every racial disparity is not caused by systemic discrimination. That's what your report says. Where is the anger coming from that compares you, a high-profile leader of educational thoughts, somebody who's devoted their lives to improving the life chances, particularly of blacks youngsters, where is that anger coming from that compares you to a Nazi?
2: Um, look, you're going to have to ask that of the, the people who um, do this and the, and the newspapers that perpetuate that, and the Twitter feed that we have that continually, continually um, kind of feeds that. And uh, I, you know, as I said, if you look at the recommendations... This is where it really gets interesting. If you were a, a Labour Party voter and you looked at those recommendations as a result of our analysis, you'd be all over this report because it's actually quite progressive. It's actually very challenging to a certain extent for maybe even traditional Conservatives. You know, and if you go through the recommendations, I, I mean, cr- incredibly kind of uh, radical things. And that's, that's how impartial we were.
3: It's a 260-page report. As you say, Tony, it's full of very detailed recommendations, many of which you'd think would appeal to Labour. And yet it strikes me that the left seem determined to oppose everything that you do. There seems to be a sort of race relations industry, people who've got unconscious bias training courses to sell. And your commissioners are not from the race relations industry. Are they? You've got Dambisa Moyo, who's a very distinguished economist. You've got Samir Shah, who's a, a very influential TV executive. You've got Keith Fraser, a former police superintendent. How important do you think that has been? The fact that your commissioners, while overwhelmingly from ethnic minority backgrounds, are not the usual race relations crowd? Who says
2: it is part of the problem. I mean, I think they come up with this term gaslighting. I'm trying to get my head around it. What it actually is saying is that, look, you can't... People's experiences of racism, in a sense, is being denied here by by these recommendations. However, we've just looked at the data. What's happened in this space is that things have been driven by emotion or belief. And so, you know, you dare question that kind of set emotion or belief then you're in trouble. So for example, with a very specific area of Black Caribbean underachievement, which we, you know, Liam, I think your paper's covered it. And, you know, we've covered this thing lots of times when we've looked at what are the reasons. And, and and almost instinctively, we've gone and said it's to do with white teacher racism. Now, it's quite clear for us, we just went, what is this? And what really is the, the reasons behind it? And we came up with we didn't even come up with this. We asked somebody else. And this is where it gets really powerful. Professor Steve Strand, who is a Oxford professor, he, he went in, deep dived into the data, and it, it emerged that, in fact, this was not the case. Some of the biggest factors around why that group failed um, in, in school and also getting high exclusions were to do with fam- what we call family strain, to do with the dynamics of, of 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 their family and also i think that what 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 was more conclusive was that the african group were going the opposite direction so you had the same black children in the same classroom one group was were, were, were doing better than the white group and the and the caribbean group and also twice you know i mean in terms of exclusions you know their numbers were you know Two, two times more, less likely to be excluded than the Caribbean group. Yeah, the BAME acronym doesn't apply there. And that's the problem we've always had. These race reports been able to kind of go underneath the radar by, for example, not dividing up the cake in sophisticated slice. So, for example, not looking at the fact that the experience of black Caribbeans are completely different than the experience of black Africans. They are different. Their outcomes are different. So what we need to know is understand why that is and what are the factors for the two performing differently. Come up with some key recommendations for that um, that, 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 Labour, that Labour would love.
3: Over the years, Tony, the UK's drawn millions of people who've settled here in search of a better life. My family, your family, the families of pretty much all 10 commissioners behind your report. We're now in a situation where Ethnic minority kids in a high-performing, much-improved inner London school are protesting that the Union Jack should be removed from their school, and teachers are giving way to that protest. What are the dangers of that? And crucially, how should the government react to such a situation?
2: I think one of the ways in which you can deal with this issue is, and we solve this in in the curriculum change that we want to have in school, nobody is asking for the decolonization of the curriculum or anything like that. The existing curriculum, we think, could be modified and, and resourced better so that, in fact, children in those schools really feel that they're understanding what Britishness really means and how you can engage with it. We're talking about resourcing a curriculum that talks about, for example, the traditions of Southeast Asia you know, to Britain and how Britain also influenced negative and positive those other Commonwealth countries. Uh, and we want, we want a stern debate around slavery, how awful it was, and how the fact that this thing was destructive and was a system that made just profits for the empire. We need to, we need to bring those facts out. But we also need to talk very clearly about how, in fact, there was the whole way in which Britain itself Um, features in in these societies and how in a way they develop alongside the african roots and how they re kind of work that and kept that to resist this system these are the kinds of things that we would like to do in the curriculum and we think that if children young people had exposed to these kinds of things which are in the existing curriculum already is that teachers don't teach that then they would be less inclined to take down Union Jacks, etc. I
3: mean, how do you feel as somebody whose parents came here in the 50s, part of the Windrush generation? Your mother works in a factory. Your father was a car mechanic. The scouts and the church groups were influential in your upbringing. You got a PhD. You're a highly respected professional guy. You're watching young black kids today trying to burn Union Jacks on the cenotaph. How does that make you feel? How does it make you feel when you see the Met taking the knee in front of violent black protests? On all
2: those points, I'm going to sort of say that I think often that's to do with some of the emotional responses that people are having to issues. And I think what we've done in this report is we've stepped away from that emotion and we've just given people the facts. And I, uh, and I would just keep appealing to people to look at the evidence and look at the real facts that are gonna really help you in terms of your, your life and, 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 and changes in your life. At the moment, we need to help some of those um, black parents, some of those um, communities, Pakistani communities, for example, really help them in terms of jobs, in terms of education, and really focus on that.
3: Does it help, Tony, when the when the Met take the knee in front of violent protesters, given that the facts suggest, the evidence shows, that race relations, police action in the UK is very different from the US? London is not Minnesota.
2: Let me go back again and say, I just simply am not interested in gesture politics. It's not for me to comment on what, police do however we have got some really interesting solid recommendations for the police one of them is a residency proposition that in fact you can only join the police if you live in that area we know that the met want to do that and they're behind us in this campaign i know chris is a dick like that idea and so what you're going to have and this is where the thing gets really interesting and if you took again if you take our recommendations seriously You're going to not have a situation where in Tottenham or whatever, you have a police force that is 90% white policing a community that is 95% ethnic minorities. That will shift. Again, a radical recommendation. In this report, what we're saying is that there's a real issue of trust between communities and the police, and we've got up some solid recommendations to break down that trust problem, one of them being this issue of residency
3: some ethnic minority academics tony i must put this to you uh, that are included in the acknowledgements of the latest report they deny involvement they say their names have been added to lend a quotes veneer of credibility how would you respond to them
2: there was no way that we you know put in clandestine names into the report that weren't you know given their consent so i think that's a bit of a mischief making and again you can see there's a sort of sense in which a certain kind of politics here wants to undermine the report. And I would just urge people just to ignore that.
3: When you compare your life chances, Tony, as somebody who grew up in South London in the 60s and the 70s, compared to the life chances of a young working class black kid today, how do you think they compare?
2: There's been significant improvements in terms of life chances. And when I was growing up in the 70s, one of the issues about... The, the life chances is it does evolve around more complex issues at the moment that we're seeing. Now, a lot of male and female really are ending up going to university, which is interesting because that was part of almost Tony Blair's vision of getting more kids into university. We've got a bit of a conundrum here because what's happening is that the majority are going to um, what we call kind of second tariff universities, yeah? Not the top ones in inverted commerce. It's not that there's anything wrong with those universities. It's the problem of the courses that some of these young people, the advice that some of these young people are getting. For example, we've got an interesting piece of data that shows very few black young people are taking up apprenticeships. And so what you've got is a very difficult situation here where a lot of black youngsters go to universities and they've got the highest dropout rate proportionately. So they're ending up doing, say, business studies or whatever, finding that doesn't, that's a waste of time. And then their lives are kind of devastated because they've got nowhere to go. So what we've got is a problem upstream. We've got young people really being ill-advised about educational opportunities and also career opportunities. And we've got to really try and fix this. It is a disparity racially, but you can see that it's not necessarily about racism here. It's just about poor advice and poor guidance for those young people.
3: There has been silence pretty much from Downing Street since your reports. Do you think the government is doing enough here to push back on the narrative that rather than making huge progress since you were a kid uh, in terms of our race relations and life chances from people from our minority communities, the government isn't doing enough to present the facts that uh, reports like yours have, have worked so hard to dig out and put in the public domain?
2: Uh, I, I think that, that it's been a week that they've got it, yeah? I mean, I don't know any other report that government of commission that shoots out the block, whatever it is, that would that would, that would would respond in, in action within a week. I mean, I'll be honest with you, I'll tell you, the sounding from government is very po- positive about this. And they and I think they're in a position now where they will accept a lot of the proposals. I'm obviously, I hope they will really accept all of them. So, no, I, don't, I, I can't after a week say that, you know, um, government is reticent. I, I, you know, uh, they, they, they've got the report, they're thinking of it. And, they, and the soundings to me is they want to act on it.
3: Shouldn't they do more to protect you personally and other commissioners who are being having not it's it's going beyond finger pointing you, you as you say you've been you've been knocked about by the race relations industry if you like for 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 a long time and and you have got the hide of a rhino and you can look after yourself but what's been directed at you and other commissioners in the last week or so goes way beyond just political knockabout doesn't it
2: the, the response yes, of course it's been extremely unnecessary and, and and over the top and ridiculous and absurd and i think that Uh, people should be ashamed some of those people linking that. They should read the report, not read what other people have said about it, and then make a comment. When people are this desperate to silence you or to discredit you, you must be saying something that's true. You must be hitting the nerve as far as they're concerned. Reasonable, you know, kind of minded people will look at this and see this isn't some extreme thing or or trying to deny racism or things like that. This is just basically trying to use the evidence to specifically help people. And I think that's the key. And, and, and if government have got anything, they will look at this report and recommend those things. That's the best thing they can do for us and for, for the country going forward.
3: Tony Sewell, thanks a lot for visiting us on Planet Normal. Thank you very much. I must say, Alison, it was a real privilege talking to Tony Sewell. We come from the same part of London, I know very well the schools that he's taught at. And he has been silent pretty much since this report was published. He hasn't broken cover. He's taken a huge amount of personal abuse. And I must say, I think he's conducted himself with a great deal of dignity.
0: Well, it was great to hear him, Liam, and and well done for getting him to talk to us. That's quite a scoop for Planet Normal. So many things leapt out at me, really. And as Tony Sewell told you, I mean, the irony is this report is quite progressive. It's radical. It contains things that are very challenging to traditional conservatives, and the left should be interested in it and rather like it. We have a vast, sprawling grievance industry in this country, which makes its living out of the idea that Britain is institutionally racist. And when you get a report like this one, which is evidence-based, which says that, yes, there are still disparities and impediments, but few of them are directly to do with racism. Too often, racism is used as a catch-all explanation for much more nuanced things. So I'm very grateful for Tony Seale for doing this report. I'm absolutely horrified that his commission has been... Vilified. I mean, quite astonishing, sort of yeah. horrible language like coconut. And I've seen far worse. And we saw this Cambridge academic, you reference, Priyamvada Gopal of Churchill College, of all places. She actually questioned whether Tony Sewell had a doctorate. And then when it was confirmed he did indeed have a doctorate, she tweeted, even Goebbels had a doctorate. I mean, how unbelievably sort of disproportionate and vile. So I think we should be applauding Tony Sewell and and, and his commission and be very grateful. Can can I just say, Liam, we're both white and I would never underestimate the challenges for people who aren't white, you know, in in our society. I saw a very powerful Channel 4 Dispatches documentary the other night which was focusing on the fact that black pregnant women have very poor outcomes with maternity care. It's clearly an issue. And I think it would be fair to say in that case that the evidence suggests it has got a racial component. But as someone who cares about young people, all young people in our country, and as someone who's taught children from all sorts of backgrounds, my worry about these ghastly people on the left is that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. They say, you are growing up in a country which hates you, which is biased against you. And as the Sewell report proves, it proves that is just not true.
3: There has been some thoughtful critique of Tony Sewell's uh, report. I should mention Maurice McLeod, who's the chief executive of the think tank race on the agenda, Mm -hmm. who's come up with some interesting responses. Alima Begum also, who heads the Runnymede, trust. Some of their language was very muscular, but I thought in the round it was reasonable. And Tony Sewell's report does warrant a debate. That's the point of it. Mm. One thing I did also discuss with Tony was the role of family as the foundation stone of success. I'm quoting from the report for many ethnic minorities, but in many areas of investigation, the point went on, including educational failure and crime, we were led to family breakdown as one of the main reasons for poor outcomes. Tony feels strongly and the commission writes in strong terms about the 63% of black Caribbean children who are in single parent families. The percentage among black Africans is 43%. It's 6% among British Indians. It's about 20% among white British. And he says the government cannot remain neutral here. These are statistics, Alison, which many of my colleagues in the media will hate me for even reading out. Mm. But they're very, very important statistics, I think, and the report presents them in a very authoritative way. And these are areas where we have to start having discussions where government has to try and bring about different outcomes and communities themselves have to try to bring about different outcomes. I'm not being judgmental. I'm just quoting these statistics and the causal linkages which researchers have found between uh, unfortunate uh, socioeconomic outcomes and family structure. So one of the big conclusions from this report, which has been widely agreed upon, is that we need to get rid of this acronym BAME, yeah. and Tony mentioned that. That's Black and Minority Ethnic. That's 13% of the population. But as this, this report makes absolutely crystal clear, and I'd encourage listeners to delve into it. It's extremely clearly written. It's well presented. Within that BAME community, this segregation of people, they're they're only defined by what they're not. And that's not good enough because within those communities, you have many ethnic groups that are way outperforming the rest of society. Asian, Indian, Chinese, Black African, by the way, also, where you have many other communities which are underperforming and do with the best will in the world, need help and help that the UK needs to extend. In the round, though, Alison, the the evidence is clear for those who are willing to be led by the evidence. Repeated surveys by the Pew Global Institute, a huge American polling company, show that the UK has a more welcoming attitude towards and tolerant attitude towards Ethnic minorities and immigrant communities, for all the ongoing racism, which is there, we have a more positive attitude than any other country in Europe. Uh, the only countries in the world that outperform us in that sense are Canada and New Zealand. So, no one's saying there aren't continued problems. There are. No one's saying that we don't need to be mindful and have positive policies that try and change outcomes for the better. But I think the UK's doing okay.
0: How did we get to the tragic position, Liam, where emphasising the, the role of strong families in raising happy and successful children came to be seen as right wing? It's absolutely extraordinary. And I did think one of the most interesting things Tony told you was that, in you know, a given class, a black African child can be doing really well and the black, you know, Caribbean child can be doing not so well and it not the colour of their skin. But there are people who are, you know, as we've said, hugely resistant to that message. I don't know if you saw Kemi Badenoch, the incredibly impressive government, the women's minister She said this week in response to the people being attacked, the members of the commission being attacked, she said that some people have made it their mission to punish any member of an ethnic minority who steps out of line and dares to give an alternative view. This creates a a chilling effect. And like you, Liam, I've been doing a bit of digging around and there's an amazing, vast 2018 European Union survey which is called being black in the eu and it it, it concluded this survey then practically every field britain is the country which racial discrimination is least experienced usually by a wide margin and i don't know i'm listeners planet normal listeners might have had the same reaction as me when they turned on the BBC News, the same day that Tony Sewell's report came out, it was a very aggressive young woman reporter, and she was really letting her interviewee have it. She was making no attempt to hide her contempt for the findings of this report. Something again, we 've talked about a lot, Liam on Planet Normal. We have an establishment which really revels in thinking the worst of our country why would people not be excited and grateful to read this report with all its reservations to think actually you know we're doing pretty well you know are uh, you know not perfect but we're doing we're doing pretty well and i thought that that should be a source of pride but people want to knock it down because it doesn't fit the victimhood narrative and i don't think that does any favors to children from ethnic minority backgrounds. Now, onto our listener emails a selection of the wonderful, insightful, often very funny, and sometimes heartbreaking messages you send to Liam and I at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. I can't tell you how much we enjoy. Uh, reading them and how much we learn from them. Here's one that caught my eye this week. It taps into something Liam and I were talking about earlier. George says... The Boris Johnson we voted for doesn't exist. He never existed. He was a product created for Daily Telegraph readers' consumption. I read every single one of his articles in The Telegraph and was convinced he held genuine conservative beliefs. His track record since becoming Prime Minister has shown a distinct malleability with regard to things that should be 100% no-brainers. Vaccine passports are just the latest in a series of things that show he really has no genuine conservative beliefs at all. The failure to denounce the Marxist BLM disturbances. The failure to say something like President Macron about statues, not one will be taken down. His response to the race report last week, or non response. The constant goalposts moved on COVID. It seems Boris is driven by a strong sense of horror at being described as Donald Trump more than anything else, which is really a bit pathetic.
3: This is one from Tim Allison, a cheery one. You'll like this. <laughs> I'm writing as leader of an Explorer Scout unit in Dartmoor National Park. The young people in our unit are aged between 14 and 18. Despite COVID restrictions, we've met whenever we've been allowed to, including a night hike and a mystery tour. Mm. When we couldn't meet, we've undertaken meetings via Zoom, with many activities including cooking fudge, a self-defence course, (laughs) planting sweet peas, careers talks from those working in the field, escape rooms, making pancakes... Tim says we're planning activities for when we're back, including a 16-hour first aid course, NVQ Level 3, paintballing, 10 tours, mountaineering in Scotland, and expedition to the Outer Hebrides. Our group has increased 35% during lockdown, and we're about to invest eight new explorers and three new adult leaders. During this last year, the young people have been an inspiration to us leaders, They've attended meetings, in quotes, and contributed massively to each other's and our happiness. They've missed out on face-to-face contact that would ordinarily be a central part of what we do in scouting, but they'll go through their lives knowing that they cope with extraordinary circumstances and had the strength to deal with whatever is thrown at them. They will have gleaned positives from their experience, and hopefully the negatives will fade or be learned from as well. These inspirational young Explorer Scouts have done their best, says Tim. Explorer Scouts, Planet Normal salutes you.
0: Oh, Tim, can we come and join in? Anything which combines <laughs> sweet peas and fudge is all right by me, Liam.
3: Put me down for that 16-hour first aid course.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, you're going to have to brace yourself, co-pilot Halligan, because Nick has written in to us. Back at the end of February, Planet Normal told my wife Joy's story as an illustration of what has gone wrong with the NHS during COVID. You may recall that it was particularly pertinent to me as I previously was the chair of an NHS hospital trust. I'm very sad to report that our story does not have a good ending. The cancer that was not diagnosed because our GPs would not see patients face to face has spread not just to Joy's bones but also into her brain. Her body has not been able to cope and she has progressively become weaker to the point that she is too weak to commence the full cancer treatment. Joy has been in and out of hospital, but yesterday I was told that they cannot stop the spread of the disease and she only has weeks to live. We are arranging for her to return home for me, our family and the various support services to care for her in this end-of-life period. Joy is only 69 and we are both shattered and distraught that our lives together, married for 46 years, are being cut short so cruelly. She is frightened and fearful, while I cannot contemplate life without her. My anger and frustration with the idiocies of this government, with its paranoia about a disease which is undoubtedly serious, but does not justify the restrictions on our lives that are imposed through a strategy of fear, has no bounds. As they carry on with the farce, my anger just grows further. Turning the NHS into the National Covid Service has caused my wife and I endless pain and suffering, As far as I, my family and friends are concerned, we will hug as much as we like. We will do what we want in our own house and garden, and we will not be told how to behave and what to do by some cruel, well-fed and protected scientists and their appalling models. Professor Neil Ferguson and his ilk, who still pop up on the BBC pontificating like tin pot gods, have so much to answer for. And those scientists who disagreed with them are still regarded as beyond the pale, even as the policies of lockdown, test and trace, quarantine, etc., are shown up for what they are. It is truly appalling, and our lives have been wrecked as a result. Thank you, Boris, Professor Whitty et al. Yours was discussed, but please keep going with Planet Normal, because you will win in the end. Nick. So, so sorry, Nick.
3: My God, that's devastating.
0: So sorry for you and Joy, and... and I wrote back to to Nick, I emailed Nick this morning, Liam, and I said that he and Joy represent many of the unnecessary casualties of cruel lockdown, which has uh, meant that people like Joy, who should have been able to see a doctor, were not seen. And that raises all sorts of questions, I think, about the role that the NHS has played both in saving lives and in tragically in destroying lives
3: god alison that's absolutely devastating oh let's just leave it there for another week yeah from planet normal as ever listeners will be responding to comments on the telegraph website on thursday morning the day this podcast is released between 11 and 12 noon thanks as ever to our producers louisa wells isabel Bujard, Elliot lampitt and our editor theodora Ludis. stay safe and stay in touch with us and with each other Until next week, it's goodbye from me.
0: And it's goodbye from him.